Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey guys, Ryan Sprague here. It is that time of the season again. Peppermint lattes, cozy sweaters, fat man coming down your chimney. Whatever it is, I am wishing you a very happy holiday season. So for any of you saucer heads out there, I just wanted to let you know we have got a ton of new designs over at the Summer in the Sky store, with many more to come. So why not get that special ufologist or enthusiast in your life something truly unique this holiday season? Visit tpublic.com and search for Somewhere in the Skies. That's T-E-E-Public.com. Also, if you're in the holiday giving spirit, the Patreon campaign is up and running and is a huge help to continue and grow the show, both in quality and quantity. With your monthly donations, I can get better equipment and even be able to go on the road to investigate and bring you exclusive content. Speaking of content, there are many rewards being offered for different levels of patronage. So head on over to the Patreon campaign to learn more and to become a patron today. That's patreon.com backslash somewhere skies. And most importantly, for anyone who purchases my book, Somewhere in the Skies, A Human Approach to an Alien Phenomenon, from now until January 1st, 25% of the proceeds will be donated to the Women's Refugee Commission. There are currently almost 60 million refugees and eternally displaced persons worldwide who have been displaced by conflict. The Women's Refugee Commission improves the lives and protects the rights of women, children, and youth displaced by conflict and crisis. The Commission are leading experts on the needs of refugee women and children and the politics that can protect and empower them. To support my work and to help an extraordinary cause this season, head on over to Amazon.com and search for Somewhere in the Skies, available both in paperback and ebook. To learn more about this amazing organization, visit womensrefugeecommission.org. Thank you for all that you do for the show and beyond. Let's make this holiday season one we won't soon forget. And with that, let's also get to this week's show. This is Somewhere in the Skies. With Ryan Spread. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. Every now and again, you come across something that feels like it was made specifically for you. Whether it's a song, a piece of clothing, a craft beer, or even a car, it speaks volumes to you that nothing else can, and it stays with you. About two months ago, 
a few listeners brought to my attention a comic book series that I'd never heard of before. I was hesitant, knowing full well that comics can often be very hit or miss, but I gave it a try, and by the first page, I was absolutely hooked. Arcadia Alvarado, the leading Democratic candidate for President of the United States, says she was abducted by aliens. As the Mexican-American governor of New Mexico, she's dealing with immigration, budget cuts, and an alcoholic ex. She's about to toss her hat into the ring as a candidate for president in the most volatile political climate ever. But then, a lonely road and a nightmarish encounter have left her with terrible, half-glimpsed memories. And now, she has to become president to expose the truth and maybe to save the world. Arcadia's Quest is at the heart of this series, written by Paul Cornell and stunningly drawn to life by artist Ryan Kelly. With the help of her quirky staff, Arcadia will pursue the truth of her abduction into danger, mystery, and awe. Saucer Country is a dark thriller that blends UFO lore and alien abduction with political intrigue, all set in the hauntingly beautiful Southwest. Today, I am speaking with the creator and writer of Saucer Country, Paul Cornell. Paul is a writer of science fiction and fantasy, comics and TV, and one of the only two people to be Hugo Award nominated for all three media. He's written Doctor Who for the BBC, Action Comics for DC, and Wolverine for Marvel. He's won the BSFA Award for his short fiction, an Eagle Award for his comics, and shares in a Writer's Guild Award for television. His latest urban fantasy novel, Who Killed Sherlock Holmes, is now available. With Saucer Country having wrapped in early 2013, Cornell and his entire creative team recently revived the series with IDW Comics with a new title, Saucer State, which chronicles Arcadia Alvarado's journey as President of the United States and her continued search for answers to what happened to her somewhere in the skies, whether she likes it or not. So, without further ado, let's dig deep into flying saucers, abductions, men in black, and the rich mythology of UFOs with Paul Cornell. So I came across your work a few months ago by several suggestions from listeners of the podcast, and I am so happy I did. I bought both volumes of Saucer Country, and I couldn't put it down, Paul. So today, oh, lovely. Thank you. Uh, of course, man. It, it was refreshing. It was something that I'm so happy I came across. So today we're going to talk all about it, Saucer Country, and also your recently released follow-up, Saucer State. So with me today is Paul Cornell. Paul, thank you so much for joining me on Somewhere in well, the Skies. Thank you very much for having me. So, I mean, like any good comic book, Paul, I'm sure you're well aware of this. I want to start with your origin story. How... How did your interest in the UFO phenomenon first begin before we even get to saucer country? Well, it was when I was a child, actually. I mean, I grew up being obsessed with space flight. And in the mid-70s, the, the whole space flight thing kind of docked completely with UFO mythology. You know, if you were a kid who was interested in Apollo, you were also interested in Close Encounters when it came along. And um, I, I would find in the library weird UFO books. Um, I realized the other day that um, George Adamski's Flying Saucers Have Landed in a hardback edition 
was in my school library when I grew up. And um, my school library was uh, it was kind of this decaying uh, country house. And um, I think our library was basically the collection of whoever had owned the house before the school came there. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I got exposed to some extraordinary things as a child. Um, so I would be reading these very scary UFO books under the bl- under the blankets and scaring myself silly. You know? so I've, I've been inured in this stuff from a very, uh, very young age. I, uh, I can mirror that quite closely, my friend. I mean, there are times where I remember sneaking these books, you know, um, not, you know, getting them from my public library, bringing them home, digesting them one by one, bringing them back, getting another one, where you become the UFO person at your local library. Libraries. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite a uh, label to have for sure. Well, that's really <laughs> cool. So, I guess without giving away too much, uh, could you maybe give us the uh, what we call in the screenwriting world, which again you're quite familiar with, uh, the elevator pitch for Saucer Country? Well, um, Arcadia Alvarado, the governor of New Mexico, is about to launch her presidential bid, and on the eve of launching it, she's abducted by aliens. And we always put that in inverted commas because she's never sure of what exactly that was or what it meant. Mm-hmm. And um, she b- runs for president um, in Saucer State, the current volume, the, the sequel. Um, she is the president and is trying to use the office to find out what happened. It's a collision between the world of politics and the world of UFO mythology. I think if you come to the book expecting a real alien invasion then you're going to be disappointed. Um, we're talking about this as a body of mythology, and it's very much slippery. It's um, it's about different levels of reality. It, I, I always think that The X-Files is strangely, strangely detached from UFO mythology. Mm. Um, you know, they, they, brought their own, they brought their own concepts to it almost immediately. I mean, nowhere in UFO mythology do you find their alien bounty hunters with um, their little weapons that fit into the <laughs> necks. You know, that's their that's made up of new cloth. That's their own mythology. And uh, so we we are right at the heart of this stuff and using using all of the tremendous multi facets of it because it's an amazing mythology. It's it's beautiful. It's it's multi layered um, and it just covers so much ground. And uh, if anything. Oddly, it's underexplored in popular culture because uh, the greys basically have just taken over everything. They're, they're like the Beatles of UFO mythology. Mm-hmm. You know? they, they, everybody's heard of them, but everything else has kind of become more obscure, if anything. That, that is a really good point. The rich history behind ufology, I guess we could put it, again, in inverted quotes, um, that there's so much to it. And something like the X-Files, they they were very ambiguous. They never named names when it came to actual cases. It was rare if that ever happened. So, yeah, it is interesting and very refreshing to see something like Saucer Country come around that actually uses that rich history, that uses the actual people that were involved in abduction cases or, you know, Project Blue Book, things like that. Myself and my wife did a, um, a tour around New Mexico when I knew I was going to be writing this comic. <laughs> and it was just a lot, delight to go and see all of these sites, you know, like, um, oh, Sirocco and, um, and, and poor old Roswell. Which, oh, yeah. <laughs> they, it, really, it, really, it really doesn't want to be that town. And it's managed to confine it to one street. And, and uh, it, it, again, mythologically, 
Roswell is this little town. And in real life, it's a huge industrial heartland. You know, mm-hmm. it's the biggest, the biggest town for 100 miles, you know. And it, all of those beautiful places with uh, resonant names where, um, you know, uh, one, one found the romance back in those days. And New Mexico is replete with it, as well as being replete with genuine, you know, space history as well. Exactly, yes, a rich, deep history, especially for our military. Uh, but yeah, that's something that your your story covers as well, and we'll definitely get to that. Well, I guess, Paul, what, what was the impetus for Saucer Country? How did the idea really come about, and how did you get connected with Ryan Kelly on this? I'm interested in the process of that. Well, um, Vertigo, um, I pitched the idea to Vertigo and they offered me a range of artists. And I was already familiar with Ryan's work from the uh, short-lived DC uh, Comics for Girls line. I can't remember what it was called, uh, Minx. And um, he did a beautiful book for them. And I, I just thought there is somebody who can do the real-life stuff I need to do really, really well. We call it acting. He does good acting. <laughs> His characters, you can see what they're, what they're emote. And also, we've discovered that he's just amazingly good at the, at the numinous, at the intrusion of the um, unbelievable into these realistic worlds as well. And that's what you really need for this title, somebody who can do both. And honestly, I, I can't imagine doing it without him. He's so vital to this book. I would have to agree. I, I feel like it is a match made in heaven. There's so many comics out there that feel detached when it comes to the writer and the artist, and it just doesn't mesh. But like you said, that the emotive nature to his art really brings out what you're trying to say with your characters, which easily <laughs> could become very, you know, forgive the pun, alienated when you're dealing with a topic like this. But it makes it very human, and I think that's what really kept me going. It wasn't even this excitement of reading about UFO history or the UFO phenomenon or abduction phenomenon. It really was this narrative and this main character that you created An, another huge aspect of saucer country i would say so well he keeps pulling me into um you know give more i mean chloe saunders the republican strategist mm-hmm. um because he draws her so well and he can do comedy so well i keep giving her more and more funny lines because i know he'll land them <laughs> and, uh, you know so that's a lovely thing where that that virtuous circle is happening you know absolutely yeah and every character is um definitely brings something to this entire story and i think that's pretty awesome i i guess my my question in terms of character would be arcadia how did the idea come up to have you know which we don't see that often we see it a lot more nowadays a female lead character in your story which is very refreshing and uh, long overdue. How did you come up with Arcadia? Well, uh, I think I'm, I made a wrong bet on the nature of American politics. I thought this is going <laughs> obviously going to be fairly soon what actually happens. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we did. All did, didn't we, mentally? <laughs> and, um, but I knew um, that she had to be of Mexican descent because I wanted to talk about aliens. I wanted to talk about the idea of you know, incursions over the border of doing that metaphor between, um, you know, Earth and space and America and Mexico. You know, we, 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 we flow with that a lot, actually. We, um, you know, it's kind of important to her, to her character that, you know, she's two generations from having been um, a, a family of illegal immigrants. Uh, that, that at the time the rhetoric was inflamed, now it's extraordinary and that was really important that was 
right at the start. That wasn't the first in the first pitch, you know. Well, in terms of that, those politics, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what what made you want to Paul uh, mix politics with the whole UFO question. I mean, we do see this run in tandem throughout UFO history of politics being involved, uh, sometimes good, sometimes bad. So, what made you want to cover U.S. politics over maybe another country or uh, something like that? Well, it's it's something that's always fascinated me, and one of the things I do quite often is take a bunch of professionals involved in one field and throw them out of their depth into something else. My shadow police books are about police and magic. And um, there was something about, you know, how vulnerable and impotent the UFO phenomena makes us. And I wanted to contrast that with the power of high office to see if any power can be brought to bear against the numinous, against the, the extraordinary. And because because I wanted to talk about UFO mythology, I knew I wanted to talk about New Mexico. And that led to the governor of New Mexico. And that led to the presidential run. And, you know, these things just seem to fit together really well. You know, the fact that the, a, a previous governor of New Mexico uh, at the time of Roswell actually figures quite largely into uh, UFO mythology really helped. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it was a very important part of the book. And we do hear a lot of the time that there are U.S. presidents who have asked this question. Like, what yeah. is what is going on with Area 51? Uh, who shot JFK? You know, we know <laughs> we know Clinton is probably the biggest outspoken one about this. Of well, yeah, well, I asked. Well, well, during her campaign, when Hillary Clinton mentioned the possibility of disclosure in a positive way. I, I I thought, wow, we're really um, we're zeitgeisting there, and then we hit a brick wall with that. Uh, I I I don't think actually the comic politically hit a brick wall at all, in that we did predict and actually have followed through on one huge thing, which is Russian interference in American politics, mm-hmm. which we we got there first with, frankly, and I'm really pleased about that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, that's become it's become clearer and clearer that that's where the title's going, and that was always part of the mix, which is is beautiful. That, um, yeah, it, uh, it's it's always refreshing when some when an art form can uh, <laughs> predict future events for sure. <laughs> but um, no, we did, I didn't expect Trump at all, mm-hmm. and now um, incorporated him in in that we've got a uh, in source state. It was somebody who looks like a, a prospective challenger in the future who um, is very like him and brings that to the table. I'm a, I'm a political geek. I'm, I'm, you know, just really, really interested. And also I respect politicians. I, um, I, I kind of wince at the general tendency to say they're all the same. Mm-hmm. I really like highly skilled politicians. And until this current one, I would think that virtually every president of the United States has been a a reasonable intellectual, you know, a somebody who could very definitely hold their own in intellectual um, debate, um, even the ones we tend to think of as stupid. I, I, Reagan, for instance, much more intelligent than he's portrayed. And um, the, the presidents who asked about UFOs, we, we go into this a, a lot in the comic, in, in, in a couple of particular issues. In fact, we're going to go there again towards the end. We've got a little, another little history lesson before we finish. <laughs> but, um, you know... Um, uh, one of my favourite books on 
about UFOs and possibly the, the single sanest book about UFOs is Mirage Men by Mark Pilkington. Yes, absolutely. And, oh, yes. Well, from, from the personal account of his own inexplicable experience to a real look into how much UFO mythology benefits American intelligence, that right back from the 1940s, that we have um, freedom of information request records of, as to you know, how many intelligence officers are in the first UFO groups. And there's loads of them. And they're not there to debunk or to observe or to report back. They're there to encourage because it's much better for them if when people look up, they don't see a U2 but a disc. And I I think personally, you know, spoilers, but it, it's, out, it's out there in a, a factual book anyway. I, I think personally, and this doesn't really spoil our future story, that it's it, it, among the many uses the intelligence community found for this stuff was trying to convince the very credulous Soviet Union, who you know would would make the occasional little news item about you know psychic powers or something like that, mm-hmm. that um, the US had a crash flying saucer, and so when Star Wars comes along and Reagan drops that careful hint to Gorbachev about. Perhaps the two of us will find we're fighting some other power. Yeah. Maybe you guys must have gone crazy in the background, going, "Oh my God, they really have." That's where well, that's where they're getting this Star Wars stuff from. Right. It, I actually contributed, I believe, to the end of the Cold War. Um, I, I think the 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 social idea that the U.S. has had a crash flying saucer since Roswell is is entirely to freak out the Soviet Union. I think that's what it's for. And the fact that the Americans got their own public to believe that it just really sold the whole the whole bit. Absolutely. I mean, we have this whole idea, which Mirage Man touches on, of disinformation. You know, when we had Roswell, the first the first headline in the newspapers was, you know, we captured a flying disc. The next day, nope, it's a weather balloon. Now, and, you and know, the guy who published that story gets promoted. Exactly. So right there from the start of modern UFO history, I mean, you have this idea of the military, of the government, using this to their benefit however they can. Uh, from a case-to-case basis, I would venture a guess when it comes to UFO crashes or uh, what is seen in our skies that could be threatening national security. It's fascinating to think that the mm-hmm. intelligence agencies could say, yep, that's alien. We're going to go work on this over here in, in the uh, you know, in darkness, and uh, let them think it's aliens, or vice versa. And I think that's what your your comic covers as well, too. This this constant struggle between what is actually happening to Arcadia, and are there aliens actually abducting human beings, yeah. and yeah. or are they not? So yeah, and, and I will keep that part secret. But I, I think the multifarious uses made of the mythology. I do believe the story of Reagan whispering to Steven Spielberg, you won't believe how much of this is true about E.T. Yes. Um, I think Reagan did that on mission. I I think he was specifically briefed to do that. Because, you know, if you're Spielberg, you're going to tell that to the first person you meet outside (laughs) the White House, aren't you? (laughs) I I think so. Those are bragging rights for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, and, and multifariousness. I, I I think it's Serpo, the Serpo documents that are, are meant to have been written by various famous science fiction writers. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a a brilliant mythology, some of which has actually been written by 
by very well qualified people. It's a uh, it's a tremendous body of work, UFO mythology. And well, well, well done, well done there, science fiction writers and uh, and the people to whom it actually happened. Because I don't I don't believe these things are mutually exclusive. I think the the mythology also includes accounts of people who were mistaken, mm-hmm. um, like Lonnie Zamora. I'm pretty sure saw the the future lunar module. Was it? Yes, yes, yes. That's what I was going to... I think, I think he saw the lunar module on the bottom of a helicopter before it was declassified. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or, oh, uh, what's his name? The Chilean, who um, was meant to have had sex with an, an alien woman in... Um, <laughs> what's his name? Um, I'm also blanking. I'm, a, I'm failing my ufology 101. But um, it's pretty clear now that he actually got... Um, he seems to have been, I kid you not, and I use these words realising how ridiculous they sound, he seems to have been gassed by the CIA. Mm-hmm. And what we have on record are his hallucinations. But anyway, so those guys are mistaken. But I also think, I also think some people, whether or not, whether or not if we were standing beside them, we would have had the same experience, who knows? But mm-hmm. I think some other people contributed honest records of things they actually experienced. I'm not about to write off the intrusion of the impossible into the world. At the the same time, all this stuff is multifarious and maybe just us glimpsing things that um, are are part of a wider reality that nevertheless do not add up to spacecraft from beyond the solar system, you know. Very good point, yes. When we're dealing with such a multifaceted, vast phenomenon, the the impetus to immediately go to Alien is always there. It's so ingrained in us. But uh, I think it's important to ask different questions of what these UFOs could be as well. So I think you do a great job. Well, it's Jacques Jacques Vallée who says... um, UFOs are far too interesting to be just alien spacecraft. <laughs> a very good point, yes. Paul, in terms of that, you know, someone like Jacques Vallée, you clearly did your homework when it comes to the mythology. Were there any researchers that you turned to when you started looking into all this? Or was this well, just an obsession with the literature that's out there? Yeah, I mean, I've all my life I've been reading this stuff, so I, I never really turned to a body of research. I checked on a few things I remembered always read 14 times actually i've stopped reading 14 times just in the last couple of months but um i've always been a reader of 14 times i've read every issue i've got a sort of vast database in my head of how all this fits together and so i i know where to go to find the research about a particular thing you know making making some particular connections for example you know it's actually you find in the history of science fiction much more stuff about um, the Shaver mystery and um, how the I remember Lemuria and um, the oh uh, Ray, Ray Palmer how his extraordinary um, how his editorial uh, his editorial direction of Amazing kind of brought forward all this impossible paranoid stuff into the mainstream in an enormous way just immediately before Roswell and that whole huge culture of, you know, the uh, Deros and the uh, Deros under the Earth who are influencing human beings above the Earth. And mm-hmm. uh, we see their, their ships coming out of the ground and those are UFOs. It was it was huge cultural phenomena that 
vanished completely and that isn't really talked about very much now. And that's much more recorded in in context in uh, the histories of science fiction than it is really in UFO mythology, because it doesn't quite fit with, with the, the mythology as later established, you know. Exactly. Um, and, and, and amazingly, um, that guy from from our mythology, Ray Palmer, uh, his name lives on as the <laughs> as a hero of one of um, DC's. Oh, what are they called? The current DC um, show. Is it the Legends, uh, Legends? Legends of Tomorrow. Uh, Ray Palmer is the Atom, and I'm pretty sure that he's named after that Ray Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> because Ray Palmer, the science fiction editor, is contemporaneous with that uh, with that character being created. Perfect. <laughs> what a perfect Easter egg. I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, Paul, you've got someone like Ray Palmer. You've got someone like John Keel. You've got someone like... Mm, oh, uh, who is the other guy I'm thinking of? Gray Barker. Um, yes. in, in terms of the men in black phenomenon. Now, this is another, you know, subset that we consider a part of ufology. And I was so happy to see that in Saucer Country, you brought this story up in a very unique way. One I haven't really thought about, one I haven't seen in the stories. And that's, it was very interesting how you handled the men in black and what they may actually have been. Um, well, would you mind commenting on that? I grabbed this wholesale from a UFO researcher called Jenny Randalls, mm-hmm. uh, who I saw talk at a 14 times convention, and she did an hour-long lecture purely on the subject of the men in black as a USAF hazing ritual. <laughs> um, and it. she came up with all sorts of um, convincing detail. That uh, um, uh, when this first started, the um, uniforms they wore and the cars they drove were just what you'd expect uh, from a visit from the feds. And it, because the rules seem to be set in stone, they stay that way through the subsequent decade. The rules being set in stone like that sort of says somebody's written the rules down there somewhere. And um, it doesn't seem... It seems odd for an actual cosmic entity to behave that way. And, and also, the... They, sometimes they haven't been very good at this, <laughs> and, and and the 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 rubbish men in black when they when they show up drop cultural details that just make you laugh and make you go oh come on yeah some of them are very good some of them are a bit rubbish and uh... it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. She just pointed out how this the whole continuum fits with the idea that this is a continuing practical joke that's been kept going over decades in the form of something written down in USAF mess halls. That, that would not surprise me one bit, especially like you say. I, ju- I actually just did an episode on Men in Black where we talked about some of the more ridiculous and bizarre accounts of them. And like mm. you said, you know, <laughs> the things they would bring up, it's just, it, it made no sense whatsoever. And again, yeah. only I think to further confuse a UFO witness, so fascinating yeah I, i'm mm. i'm happy to hear that that came from someone like jenny randalls who i have a great respect for so that's that's oh, yeah. interesting with, with keel as always mm-hmm. i think he's on his own his own long strange journey and I, I don't think that's what happened to him but i i indrid cold i have no idea it's such a beautiful name it's such um again such a writerly invention um whether that's his invention or whether that's an invention of some kind of cosmic trickster who knows absolutely it's it's very poetic the the idea of this grinning man showing up and having a conversation and leaving it, it's it's fascinating you know i'm um, tying into the whole mothman prophecy as well uh john keel i do agree with you is on his own personal journey now whether or not he did witness Men in Black or this, you know, this this singular figure that we've come to know as Indrid Cold. Uh, I, I'm deeply fascinated by that as well. Something maybe maybe uh, we we could see in future saucer state uh, follow ups. Who knows? <laughs> well, I, d- I, no, I have an ending plan. That's the thing. Um, that is the thing. Yes. It's really important to me that, um, you know, we we are still hoving towards this ending that we've had in mind all along and again unlike the x-files which is a different beast it's got a it's got different aims it wants to keep going we know where we've been going and we have i know what the last page is and we are going to answer all our questions and tie little bows around every single mystery this is really important to me so, uh, yeah, it's uh, well, it just occurs to me that the strange thing about this mythology is that when somebody who knows them encounters the men in black, who's who, who is aware of the mythology, nobody ever just puts one in a headlock, slabs the door <laughs> and calls the papers, do they? I mean, nobody, nobody just grabs this stuff and runs. That, that's a um, very good point. You even bring this up in Saucer Country. Like, yeah. why, when you're on the ship, if you're being abducted, just grab something off the table, for God's sake. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's why I did that scene of Michael where he has his false abduction narrative that's mm-hmm. put there by a, a, a hypnotist uh, under, um, you know, hypnotic recall, that he actually gets into the business of fighting the greys, mm-hmm. that we have a little grey doing kung fu and all that. <laughs> because honestly, the, the range of things that you can imagine the greys doing that aren't hilarious is pretty tidy. Yeah, I mean, as soon, as soon as they start to do anything but but loom ominously, they become fairly ridiculous. And um, the fact that whenever we do seize a bit of fairyland, whenever it's given to us, like cakes, all this food that that, that aliens give people, mm-hmm. um, and it always turns out to be fairly stodgy recipes with no salt in it. <laughs> um, it it's, um, 
<laughs> you know, they have they have extraterrestrial wheat mills there, extraterrestrial right. flour. You know, <laughs> um, they're not gluten free, I would assume. Well, they they, they probably have become gluten free at this point. Yeah. <laughs> mm. On a more serious note, Paul, you you also bring up another really uh, interesting aspect of the mythology in terms of what I would assume is sort of connected to Project Blue Book, but you have this idea of the blue birds angle in your story. Mm. Uh, This, you know, black budget, top secret thing going on behind closed doors. I loved it. Loved it. You know, possibly, possibly being the key word, reverse engineering UFO craft. How did this whole idea come about in Saucer Country? Well, well, they used to work for the government and then they went off into private enterprise all at once. And this came about because I started to read articles about the fact that there were aerospace professionals who were interested in this stuff, who would meet up clandestinely without, not under any kind of name that would indicate what they were interested in, because they were very afraid of ridicule. I'd also been reading books about, some of which I think were really not good journalism, about aerospace engineers who had found effects which weren't supported in physics. The idea that sometimes engineering can get there first and start developing an effect that's not fully understood. I think it's entirely possible that you could encounter something for which there is not a theoretical background. And the bluebirds are are about private enterprise doing that and running with it. And, of course, they've got this mythological leader who's meant to be still alive, having fought in the Battle of Britain, who's done all the fictional things that, you know, every time somebody says... um, oh, I was a member of this special ops force who went to get downed um, UFOs in Cambodia. Um, It turns out we can't find their military credentials anywhere, you know. Um, He he did all that stuff. You know, he was on the moon at the same time as the Apollo astronauts, all those things. (laughs) But um, so, yeah, uh, it's trying to bring all the different aspects together and I, I have to have some different plot lines to explore some stuff which go to the places that our heroes can't go, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I mean, another big part of that is the folkloric aspect. You have, you know, large sections within the book that uh, comment on this idea of fairies, which I found mm-hmm. very interesting. This is a big part of the mythology when you look at someone like Jacques Vallée, who's looked at this very culturally and looked at the evolution of the idea of alien throughout history, you know, from magic <laughs> to mysticism to what we have today, this idea of the gray. Well, the, the, the way that, that fairies and aliens map onto each other so completely that um, they're doing the same cultural things. And also, just for a moment in the middle, European aviators. During the, uh, at the end of the 19th century, when America had was overflown by Jules Verne-style airship that are just a few years ahead of current technology. This is at the time when Zeppelin is just flying prototypes that can't get further than 100 yards in Germany, you know. Right. Um, that America's being overflown by these mysterious airships. And people meet the occupants from them all the time. And they are inventors from Europe who swear the locals to secrecy because they're they're about to go home and, uh, you know, have, apply for their patent. And, um, As they should. <laughs> yes. And, and they are, they are by, you know, the accounts we have of them 
are complete, uh, you know, they give their names, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and the, these people cannot be, they cannot exist. And yet there they are. That's a very good point. Well, I guess, Paul, in terms of the, the aliens you choose to cover in Saucer Country, we have the Greys and we have the Reptilians, which I mm-hmm. thought was hilarious. Uh, oh, and, we, some, and some ancient Nordics. Yes, course. yes, we do have the ancient Nordics as well. We have the whole contactee movement, which is something we didn't talk about. But uh, yes, very fascinating, the aliens you choose to involve within this narrative. What oh, made you choose these things? Oh, you can't forget Hopkinsville. The, the goblins are one of my favorite stories of all time. When I saw <laughs> that, the, you know, almost flash page that Ryan and you decided to do. Uh, it was gorgeous and it was the first time that really the Hopkinsville case really came into full <laughs> full effect for me. I was like, oh my god, I would have been terrified. I think I think actually the, a recent article which talked about mating owls mm-hmm. how there are these enormous local owls around there that um, hang on to each other and flap about in twosomes being genuinely terrified on the ground. I do wonder if those poor guys really were besieged by something and it was those owls. That is a very but, interesting uh, question, yeah. But no, I like I like the vast variety. The And I, I especially like the ones that never quite got off the ground. Anybody who meets insect people, you know, they, they tend to be a one-off. They don't, they don't retain their detail between... Yeah. Um, yeah. And that guy from Birmingham who met basically Gandalf and our R two D two. I know we shouldn't laugh, but come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but um, well, there is nothing inherently more silly than about meeting somebody who's got a copyright on them than, it, yes. <laughs> than, than meeting the reptilians. There really isn't. <laughs> um, but. Um, and of course, the reptilians have now become some a bit more fashionable than the greys. <laughs> one one thing that's really interesting is that none of this stuff is fashionable anymore. That we're we're actually getting to the end of U, of UFO mythology. I think. I think unless something some new new cycle comes along, some new development comes along, it feels like a field that's increasingly talking just to itself. Mm. And um, I think basically the success story of the greys kind of finished it off. The, the reptilians are sort of its last gasp, mm-hmm. and um, it's uh, and what the reptilians bring bring with them. I mean, the way this whole field has been swinging to the right from the contactees, which is a fairly liberal movement, mm-hmm. all the way to post cattle mutilation on, we're going further and further into right wing fantasies and conspiracy theories, and the reptilians are the the height of that. You know, the um, this strange. Um, equivocation between reptilian aliens and Jewish people, which is, is abominable and, um, and is sort of the secret language of um, conspiracy theory. You know, um, there are those who say reptilian, reptilian, reptilian and mean reptilian alien and those that mean, you know, perfectly normal people who they don't like very much. Very good point. And, yeah. And um, so... You know, it's. Uh, I, I wanted to explore the, um, you know, the uh, sheer variety, and I love the old Venusians. I love Orthon and all of his like Orthon. Isn't that a fabulous name? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, that, we have that piece of paper with all the <laughs> the names written in and crossed out. Thor. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, Thoron. You know. 
<laughs> we landed on Orthon, which I think is great. But uh, Paul, you that that is a very good point and something I haven't really touched on the show. Um, I I don't get political often, but I think what your your book does well is bring this idea of the alien forward not meaning extraterrestrial but just other and the idea that we live here in america uh, uh, no not just america all all across um mm. all across the world we we live in a very extreme tension filled yeah. world right now and like you said i do see within that small subset of the ufo community or ufology this extreme leaning right now which mm. is extremely disappointing to someone like myself who is on the younger side sees a lot of very rational tolerant young people getting into the ufo field and coming face to face with the reality that it's sort of being run by the david ikes of the world yeah. or uh, yeah. things like that that there's this ambiguous like you say, reptilian thing that they're going with, which clearly is not alien. It is a small, you know, different race of human being that they're they're commenting on. Um, mm. th- this is very fascinating. I think your comic was ahead of the time in in looking at that. That 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 Arcadia is searching for answers to what has happened to her, but at the core of it, it's this idea of people not wanting the other to be here. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yes. And um, it, it's, uh, it, you know, UFO mythology is an expression of fear, largely. It's Absolutely. fear of the unknown. It's fear of the other. And it's also an expression of powerlessness. You don't get much more powerless than an abductee. And it also became an expression of the idea that the government is hiding the most wonderful things about the universe. And, you know, I'm quite a fan of David Clark, um, the British researcher who went from, I mean, I wouldn't call him a skeptic because there are skeptics who just enjoy laughing at this stuff. And I'm not with them at all. I I find that boorish and actually as... um, true believerish and fundamentalist as as anybody who fully buys into one of the conspiracy theories. But um, he's a small, small smaller sceptic who um, basically doesn't think there is anything alien to it and but he's done a huge amount of research into the mythology and one of the things that he runs with is how the British government seemed to have a genuine interest for a while set up a desk uh, to you know record instances of people encountering UFOs Mm -hmm. gathered this stuff for a long time and then just basically got bored and, um, you know, filed it all away and stopped having the desk and laid everybody off. And, you know, it's kind of the opposite of the response you'd expect if there, were, if there was anything to it. They seem to, be, they seem to have become convinced that there was nothing there. Well, um, yeah. And I mean, that's something that I think your main character is searching for as well, where she's searching for an answer to what may have happened. But, you know, maybe it's not what we all expect. We've had so many projects here in the U.S. that have looked at the UFO phenomenon, and they all eventually fizzle, whether that's due to finances or what, but uh, you, you do have to wonder, you know. Well, I think I think it's because the, the interest here is not in, not in nuts and bolts. Issue 5 of um, Source State is a, an issue that um, involves a lot of quotes from somebody I'm, I'm very fond of, the writer Jeffrey Kripal, who is a historian of religion who takes UFO mythology seriously 
in as he does any other religion he writes about and his his view on it is tremendous um in very very refreshing and and treats people who've had these experiences very fairly i think and you go away from him feeling that the bounds of reality do sometimes fray at the edges he he points out how writerly the phenomena is um how like a body of of fiction but that doesn't actually make sense either in that there are all sorts of coincidental and beautiful and poetic links with the things that have happened across ufo mythology which seem to imply structure and reason and purpose but you know unless there has been a single team of writers show running this thing from the 1940s (laughs) until now that's just not possible under the rules of reality as we know them you know absolutely yeah, and, and I think that, you know, someone like Krapel brings up a good point that this is more about us than it ever is about whatever is out there. It, it is us oh, yes. shining a mirror on ourselves. His, his brilliant quote about um, the idea of a, of a UFO without an observer is ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the whole, the, the whole tree falling in a forest. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of the idea of what the government might know, Paul. What do you personally believe? Are aliens visiting the planet? Does our government know anything about what's going on? Well, I, I think the governments of the Western world only, I think they think they've made it up entirely. I, I think at the highest levels of the intelligence community in the States, those who are concerned with this stuff, they pretty much think that UFOs are their baby, that this is something they wrote. Do I think aliens have ever visited Earth? Maybe once or twice? Maybe this is a huge cargo cult. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe it touched the Earth once and we reacted so hugely that it's we've created a, a religion around it. I I have some time for Barney and Betty Hill. I, I think they are either great American writers and amazing mythologists who who basically put together huge strands of this mythology out of nothing. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of The Outer Limits. Uh, people who talk about Barney and Betty Hill's experiences in relation to the episode of The Outer Limits that had gone out the previous week, which is an episode called The Bolero Shield. As a huge fan of The Outer Limits and a follower of UFO mythology, all the time I was growing up, I never associated those two things, and I still don't. I think it's an enormous stretch um, the Bolero Shield bit has no narrative elements that play into the UFO mythology. Um, the only connection is that these are aliens that have rather wraparound eyes, and they don't look very much like the Greys, honestly. They really don't. And um, also, there's no proof that Barney and Betty Hill ever saw it. And The Outer Limits at that point, not a very big show. You know, not rating very well. Um, so, let, blowing that out of the water, I think they seem to have come up with, either through it happening to them, or through pulling just amazing things out of the collective unconscious under hypnosis. And the fact that details of their experience were edited out of, of the later mythology. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 guys, the little guys they meet are in uniforms with caps. Like the biker in the village people, <laughs> right? Um, and um, we, you know that that gets edited out because it feels silly. Yes. And um, uh, Betty's star map, the way that seems to relate to—I I know it's been debunked, but 
again, she actually saw something and drew it, you know, and and there's all sorts of little features which seem genuinely they have veracity to them. They feel they feel like they could be real. And that that uh, that applies to almost nothing else in the literature. I, I, I think something interesting happened to them. We may never find out what. Maybe that's not the one or two points where, you know, where the alien arrived. I, I, I sort of think maybe they were here briefly and then went away again. It's vaguely possible. You know, some some film you see, almost no photographs, but some, some video is more convincing. I, I don't think there are any good UFO photographs, obviously. I, I, there aren't even really many good fakes, even. <laughs> good point. Um, but um, that recent um, collection by um, Jack Womack, um, mm-hmm. uh, Flying Sources Are Real, which basically contains every, you know, every memorable photo from one's childhood, you know. There's there's nothing in there that really makes you go, woo, maybe once or twice. Yeah. You know, yeah, maybe once or twice. Uh, or maybe even it, it's just a flyover. And, or the, tech, the stealth technology was good enough so that we never really noticed very much. I, I, I tend to agree with you, you know. Uh, I've never come down hard, even as a UFO, quote-unquote, researcher, of when you get asked that question, uh, it's so hard to answer. The, yeah. I, I feel like yeah. the, the most clear, concise answer you can ever give is, I don't know. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It speaks volumes. I mean, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you look deeply into something like Rendlesham Forest, and it just falls up. Part like a wet, wet card house. Yeah, you know, and so many of these cases are like that. That they require they require belief. You know, yes. to, to to keep going. Yes, it's a struggle we we have all the time. Belief versus fact within the UFO field, for mm. sure. But uh, I mean, when you when you listen to the Rendlesham tapes mm-hmm. and the voices on the board, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, still looking at this light in the sky, like we have. <laughs> Uh, yeah, these guys are not going through a great transcendent experience, are they? <laughs> That's a good point. And then often the audio we do hear, whether it's on a documentary or whatnot, are the one small moments where something out of the ordinary does happen. And that's what yeah. we always hear. Very I mean, good if point. You're, if you're observing a light in the sky on the horizon for several hours, I tend to suspect <laughs> <laughs> that might be something astronomical in nature. Mm-hmm. Yes. Maybe a lighthouse, maybe not. We'll never, again, we'll never know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, sort of wrapping things up, Paul. So I'm sure, like you and many of your readers, they were disappointed when Vertigo decided not to continue Saucer Country. But we've we've sort of hinted at what is coming right now. That is Saucer State, the new, the new version with IDW. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what we, we can expect with this new... Is it a 12-issue run? Um, it's a six-issue run initially. Okay. Then we're... So the last issue of that comes out just before the turn of the year in late December. There's a gorgeous new IDW complete edition of the original Saucer Country in one volume um, where I've taken the opportunity to fix a few errors like, you know, move speech balloons that were pointing to the wrong person, all that. And Saucer State will be collected early in the new year, those six issues. And then we're going to pause a bit to let Ryan Kelly recover for a while. (laughs) And then we are going to finish it in um we're still discussing what the form of that might be whether it'll be individual issues whether it'll be one volume 
Um, we're not sure, but then there will come the conclusion. The conclusion will be roughly roughly four to six issues long, but it might be in one volume. Perfect. Oh, well, that's very exciting to hear. I'll take whatever I can get with it, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, I've been looking over your resume, Paul, after I discovered Saucer Country, and you've worked on some pretty extensive properties. And this is a question, sort of throwing you a curveball here, but something like Saucer Country and Saucer State is completely yours. You created this from start to finish. Uh, what I kind of want to know before we leave here is what is it like as a writer working on a completely original project versus a pre-existing world, you know, a franchise that everyone knows that you're sort of diving into, what do you find most rewarding about either one of those? Well, I, 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 I got the opportunity when working in other people's worlds to deal with characters I'd always wanted to write, you know, your you Doctor Who's and your um, Marvel characters. And mm-hmm. um, that's a great pleasure. And, but I've started to feel in recent years that that's fun and the the serious work, the stuff that I really want to do lies in, in original characters. So I'm pursuing that much harder now. Yeah, it's sort of a, a, a mixed diet, a varied diet. You know, you want to do a bit of one and a bit of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've just been amazingly fortunate to be able to wander about sort of being a bit of a dilettante and um, just sort of having fun and doing bits here and there. Now I've made my big decision to only work on my own characters. Hmm. You know, the universe mocks me. Um, as soon as I said that on um, Twitter... An hour later, Titan Comics announced they'd got the rights to Dan Dare. (laughs) (laughs) And part of me went... Could you not have waited a day? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God bless Twitter for all its uh, its good and bad, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, I, I really love Dan Dare, and I would really have wanted to do that. And, uh, but I just I just ruled myself out beforehand. Hey, there's, so, uh, you know, we live in a world where you can always go back on your word, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I may be doing that soon. Um, I've, I've, there's one last thing. There's one last thing. No, I can't talk about that yet. That's but, fair. Uh, <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm loving Saucer Country and Saucer State. And, um, you know, I think it's sort of, it, it's it's my big story. It's my sort of central work. I mean, my most autobiographical work is my horror novel, Chalk. But this is this is the what I really want to land and to finish, you know. And um, I'm amazed that we got, you know, IDW, because um, Chris Ryle of IDW is such a, uh, a UFO buff. He was sort of, he was the the big factor in bringing us over there. And, and, you know, to their credit, DC were very cooperative in uh, giving the rights back to us. So, you know, it's, it's been delightful all in all. That's great. Well, now I know another guest I'm going to turn to now. So thank you for giving me that name over at IDW. <laughs> oh, yeah. Chris Ryle, Chris I'm sure wins. he loves conversations like this. Oh, that's great. Well, you, you mentioned Chalk. What else do you have on the creative side coming up? Is there anything you can talk about right now? Um, let me see. Uh, my Litchford books, um, starting with Witches of Litchford, continue at um, Tor.com Publishing. I've got all sorts of things that, that it's going to be a busy year for me, but um, this is the sort of point of the year where you can't talk about anything. That's completely um, fine. No, it was this year, it was Chalk and Litchford. And, um, and I've just finished a run on Vampirella for my old friend Matt Idelson, who was the editor at Dynamite. Um, and yeah, that's that's about it right now. I, I think that's p- plenty for sure. <laughs> well, Paul, where can we find Saucer State and uh, more about what you're up to? 
Well, you can find Source Estate in all good comic shops um, or on Comixology uh, digitally. And you can find the collected Source Country from IDW there as well. And you can find out all about me on paulcornell.com or Paul underscore Cornell on Twitter. Perfect. Well, Paul, I can't tell you how happy and giddy I was to have discovered your work, <laughs> probably much later than well, I should have. But, you know, now I eagerly await every issue of Saucer State. It's it's interesting. You know, we live in such a fast-paced, binge-consuming world now. Uh, it's refreshing, again, to wait for something to come out. I think that's very important. Uh, it, it really helps the reader and the writer in the creative side and the consuming side especially when it's something as close to my heart as UFOs. So, well, thank you. Of course. And I'm, 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 really glad, I'm really glad we've um, we've tuned into something there for you. Thanks very much. My, my pleasure. Thank you again for bringing Arcadia and company out. I, I think it's an incredible story. I can't wait to see where it's going and how it's going to end. I think that's very exciting. <laughs> so thank you again for joining me on Somewhere in the Skies. Thank you. All right, that is it for this week's episode. I have to thank Paul again for coming on. Again, the newly released series, Saucer State, can be found on Comixology or through idwpublishing.com. For a complete list of Paul Cornell's work, be sure to visit him at paulcornell.com. If you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review Somewhere in the Skies on iTunes. This is the largest platform for podcasts, and the more subscribers we get the more visible the show becomes to new listeners. We're on Twitter at Somewhere Skies, Instagram at Somewhere Skies Pod, and to make any topic and guest suggestions, to read bonus articles, and to submit your own UFO sighting and encounters, please contact me through the website, somewhereintheskies.com. I'll see you here next Monday, and remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching Somewhere in the Skies. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with Antica Productions and the Antica Podcast Network. To learn more, visit anticaproductions.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic Podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>